This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. The Economist. In London, this is The Economist, and you're listening to Babbage, a weekly conversation on science and technology. I'm Kenneth Kukier, the data editor, and on today's show, we'll discuss the mosquito-borne virus that's linked to a worrying number of birth defects in Brazil. And we'll also tackle the age-old question, do Facebook friends count as real friends? With me to discuss these topics are my real friends and my colleagues. Slavia Chenkova, our public policy correspondent, and Jason Palmer, our science correspondent. Slavia, how are you today? Good. Thank you, Ken. Great. And Jason, how are you? A little under the weather, but I'm going to make it, Ken. Okay. Well, I hope it's not the Zika virus. We're going to turn to you, Slavia, first. The Zika virus is spreading at a worrying rate in Central and South America, and the U.S. Centers for Disease Control has even advised pregnant women to hold off from traveling to the region. Tell us what's happening. So last October, doctors in Pernambuco, uh, one of Brazil's northeastern states, started noticing a sharp increase in birth defects, uh, primarily microcephaly, which is an abnormally small head, uh, which indicates that the baby uh, is brain damaged, and that leads to uh, lifelong disabilities. And since October, uh, Brazil has reported over 3,500 cases of microcephaly, whereas normally they would have uh, fewer than 200 per year. The other causes of uh, the condition, which are uh, drugs, alcohol, exposure to rubella, and other viruses during pregnancy have been um, ruled out. So the Zika virus, uh, which uh, had been circulating in Brazil since May, is pointed out as a culprit. And we don't yet have definitive evidence uh, that it is causing birth defects. However, the evidence is mounting that that might be the case. How does it spread? It is a mosquito-borne virus. So uh, when a person who is infected with Zika is bitten uh, by a mosquito, the mosquito will then uh, transfer the virus to another person. Is it possible that the, the mosquitoes that are infected could spread to other countries and so people elsewhere might be at risk? It could be possible. With travel uh, nowadays, as you know, when you travel, um, sometimes they would spray the plane uh, when it takes off from a tropical location, but mosquitoes can uh, obviously sneak in. Uh, this being said, the mosquitoes that are able to transmit the virus are already widely spread uh, in many tropical locations. Uh, and another type of mosquito, which uh, can be found uh, as far north as New York or Chicago or parts of Europe, uh, is also thought to be able to transmit the virus, although perhaps less efficiently. So how far has the virus itself spread? How many people do we think are infected with it? So since the virus uh, first arrived in Brazil in May last year, it has made its way uh, to 18 countries in uh, South and Central America, as well as the Caribbean. Some of those are territories such as Puerto Rico, but obviously it has spread quite widely. 
um, it is very difficult to tell how many people are infected um, because Zika has no symptoms in four out of five people that it infects. Brazilian uh, health officials estimate that there may be between half a million and 1.5 million people infected in Brazil alone. Is it only a danger to pregnant women or is it a danger to others as well? It is not known. Until recently, it was thought that it's a pretty much harmless virus. One in five people would have symptoms, and those are um, almost, in all cases, very mild. Fever, rash, flu-like, aches. However, the worries now about the Zika being linked to birth defects, as well as possibly some neurological and autoimmune disorders, which have been on the rise in Brazil, El Salvador, and some other places uh, where Zika has started to circulate. And do we have a cure for it? Is there any way we can treat this? No, there, is no, there are no antiviral drugs uh, for Zika, and there is no vaccine. However, uh, scientists in America and other places are starting to work on one. But obviously, vaccines uh, takes many years, uh, perhaps at least a decade and hundreds of millions of dollars to be developed. So uh, we are not expecting one to be available anytime soon. Okay. And how do you expect this to affect tourism, especially with the Olympics coming up? Well, this America's uh, Centers for Disease Control last week uh, issued an advisory telling pregnant women to avoid travel to any of the countries where Zika is circulating. So that is probably going to have an effect. Other countries and the World Health Organizations are, are, are advising pregnant women to uh, speak with their doctors before they travel to locations where Zika has been confirmed. Brazilian officials um, are saying that the weather is on their side. The Olympics are during the cooler months when mosquitoes are less of a worry. And Brazil is also uh, taking great precautions uh, to get rid of mosquitoes. They've had a large campaign to eradicate or rather to control the mosquito populations. They've involved the army since December. They've declared a public health emergency. Hopefully, it won't be a huge risk. But obviously, um, anyone who travels to places with Zika uh, must take extra precautions to avoid bites which also makes sense because the mosquito that transmits Zika also transmits uh, dengue, yellow fever, and other uh, tropical nasties. That's right. Well, listen, thank you very much for updating us on that, and we're going to continue following it in The Economist. Thank you, Ken. Jason, now on to you. You're writing about the Dunbar number. Uh, in other words, the maximum number of friends a person can have. Jason, you're one of my two or three friends. Tell me what's going on. I can tell you that if you really only have two or three, that you've got some cognitive capacity going spare. The Dunbar number is uh, is the outcome of a study actually from the early 90s by Robin Dunbar at the University of Oxford looking into this, – this started with a study of primate uh, genuses genera uh, looking at the size of their neocortex, the bit of the forebrain, the, the sort of uh, most recently evolved part of the brain. And there seemed to be a correlation between the size of that part of the brain and the size of the sort of social groups that these different primate species gathered in. And so it draws a nice curve. It all looks – you know, uh, everything seems to fall on the same curve. It's got some data for, for human neocortex as well, lays down the numbers, it should be that we ought to be, have a, a social circle somewhere between 100 and 200. For simplicity's sake, this has kind of been rounded to 150 is Dunbar's number. And the idea is that that's just about as many stable relationships as, as you can manage, right? So, And people come and go. It's not the same 150 people all the time. It might be 120 or 190, whatever it is. But the idea here is that that's kind of a limit placed on us, if you like, by the, the neocortex. 
Okay. And so what's the new research tell us? Well, uh, the, uh, this was, again, early 90s, uh, long before your Facebooks and your Twitters and your Snapchats and your what have you. Um, and so a lot of people in the meantime have suggested that perhaps modern technology might have uh, some effect on Dunbar's number. It makes it w- with modern technology, we can communicate more easily with, with our friends. And therefore, perhaps there's a sort of a, a, a modern version of the number taking into account that we don't have just our four brains to rely upon. Right. We have online social networks like Facebook. So have we found that we're able to manage more relationships because of these new technologies? Well, there's been lots of studies and pretty much broadly everything seems to point in the direction of Dunbar's number being largely unmoved by, by all of these other, these, these other tools. Um, but there have been critics, the, the cyber optimists, if you like, who insist the social opportunities provided by all of these, these networks and so on must surely change that and make it easier and better and you can have more friends and you can maintain more stable relationships and so on. As, as, a, as a neophyte to the debate, I would be in line to agree with the techno-optimists that there's a natural friction of having relationships in the offline world that when you go online and you reduce that friction, you should be able to have greater friendships and, and in some ways and perhaps even deeper ones across time and place in the same way that when you reduce friction in all other areas of life, say in the financial markets, you get a gain that you wouldn't otherwise have. The way this has been broken down up until now uh, is, is about you know, where is the actual bottleneck, right? Is it a cognitive one? Is it that's just as many as your brain can handle? Or is it one of, of time? And certainly, you know, in your argument here, barriers to entry, time spent, what have you, is certainly reduced by these tools. But the problem is each time this has been studied uh, across uh, Facebook and Twitter and what have you, Dunbar's number just keeps popping up. If you look, even though people might have, you know, sort of 8,000 friends and what have you, if you look at the actual close interactions, it's still something much closer to, uh, to, to Dunbar's number. So what was wrong with the studies that came before and what is the new study? Critics of, of the earlier studies say that uh, effectively not enough people had been asked and the wrong kinds of people had been asked. Doing big studies, large samples and so on, completely randomizes an expensive business. If you ask people to participate in Facebook surveys, you'll get perhaps disproportionately heavy Facebook users, for instance. So pretty much everybody who wanted to knock down this idea that Dunbar's number you know, is, is not fixed in the online world say, oh, well, you just had bad sampling techniques, you had small samples, you, had, you weren't asking a general slice through the population. The new study addresses exactly this, um, and it's a bit funny how this came about. This is, this is thanks to some PR from a biscuit maker in Dorset you may have heard of called Thomas J. Fudge. Heard of them? No, I don't even know their biscuit. <laughs> you'd, guess it was, you'd guess it was fudge, right? Um, they uh, wanted to do a bit of survey-driven PR about, you know, get offline and talk to your friends over a biscuit and so on and wanted to get uh, Professor Dunbar to, to comment on it. And he, seeing an opportunity, says, how about if I throw in some extra questions on your survey you're going to send out because they were going to do a big national-scale survey, exactly the sort of thing that this question needs to, to, to finally address the, the broader question. So it goes, they survey 2,000 people who self-identified as very regular social media users and about 1,400 who were just sort of, you know, business professionals um, who may or may not have been Facebook users as a sort of control group, if you like, something more representative of the, of the population at large. And lo and behold, across those two groups, the numbers emerge as 155 and 187 claimed friends squarely in the Dunbar's number uh, category. And moreover, if asked about like, well, how many of those are close friends and how many of those are people you would go to in a crisis and so on, those numbers, again, replicate what Dr. Dunbar has been seeing for, for 20 years now. I think this really raises the question whether the study is truly novel. 
in the past, we asked people the question and we received you know, the answer. Again, although we are in a digital setting and we could have better measurement in this case, observed behavior rather than reported behavior, yet we're relying on a reported behavior in 2,000 people. That's a small N. Well, it is, but it's a bigger N than uh, that, that covers this same ground. So perhaps this doesn't absolutely close the book on it, but it is starting to be more one of those uh, preponderance of evidence type type questions. It's strangely, I would disagree. I would think that it it's, it reconfirms that people can only recall 150 friends, not that they truly interact with that same number. But uh, what we're asking about here is, and this is a bit squishy, right, that we're talking about stable relationships. If I can ask you then, name all the people with whom you think you have a stable relationship and that number comes out at 150 or so, but you've got, you know, 4,922 Facebook friends, I think that still proves the point. Maybe, although it could be that we could look at, say, email patterns and social media patterns and find out that in the last decade, we went from a social circle of, say, the Dunbar number of 150 to 250 because we've reduced the friction, because we're, we have a more of an attitudinal shift in interacting with more people. We may feel that we can only recall and state 150 when we're asked that overtly by a questioner, but in fact, our behavior as evidenced by what the data can collect that we're not even aware of shows that it might have grown. And we don't know that yet from this study. No, and, and I, t- I take your point. And, and also it's, it's worth mentioning that studies of the, the actual revealed preferences, what have you, in Facebook behavior in those smaller studies or in those uh, sort of niche groups, if you like, does show that you know, regardless of the number of stated friends, the number of friends that they actually have, that the, the, the interactions do go on among the smaller number. I can see, though, Ken, you are going to remain doggedly unconvinced this time around. No, not not unconv- well, unconvinced insofar as I think it's an area of, of further study. I think this is a great topic to explore, but I don't think that this this adds only marginal amount of new information and, in fact, uh, may embed all the same biases that the previous studies have. Well, we're going to have to wait for a great many survey-driven PR drives to, uh, to, 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 to address all of this, I guess. Thank you very much, Jason. Thanks. That's all for Babbage. Remember, if you want to join the conversation, you can tweet us at EconSciTech or find us on Facebook at The Economist. For more news on science and technology, visit Economist.com. In London, this is The Economist. The Economist. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. 